you are listening to a podcast from The National. Millions are on the brink of famine in Yemen, where a civil war has raged since 2015. But for the first time in two years, the Yemeni government and the Houthi rebels are negotiating a resolution. Both sides are locked in a dialogue in a castle on the outskirts of Stockholm, working towards peace, a prospect that humanitarian organizations say is long overdue. Last week, the UN envoy to Yemen, Martin Griffiths, put forth a series of confidence-building measures. He says both sides need to adhere to concessions to build any sort of chance at a settlement. So far, he's succeeded in bringing both sides to agree on a prisoner exchange and made way for Houthi fighters injured in the war to fly to Amman for treatment. But the number of lives saved on the ground will ultimately define the success of these talks. And that means ensuring humanitarian aid gets to the millions of starving Yemenis. I'm Nasr al-Wesmi, and on this episode of Beyond the Headlines, we'll take a look at peace efforts in Yemen. The biggest roadblock has been Hodeida. Both sides insist on claiming control to Yemen's biggest port, but neither have shown signs of budging. The talks are long and tedious. The last round in Kuwait in 2016 lasted 100 days before breaking down. So what's different today? And what are some of the agreements both sides can reach that can remedy what the UN has called the worst humanitarian situation in the world? Later in the show, we'll talk to Juliette Tuma, the UNICEF chief working in the Middle East, on the worsening humanitarian situation in the Arab world's poorest country. But first, we'll hear from the Nationals' Mina Drubi, who is in Sweden reporting on the peace talks. Thanks for taking the time to do this, Mina. Thanks for having me. We've had talks in the past uh, between the two sides. I want to know what makes these talks any different from the previous rounds of negotiations. So this time around, there's been a very positive atmosphere here in Sweden. Just the fact that the Houthi delegation decided to show up is seen as a huge victory, not only for the United Nations, but for Yemen. Um, especially as the Houthis failed to show up to the previous round of consultations in Geneva last September. And this time round, I can sense that there's some kind of determination from the two parties to resolve this war. Since last Thursday, when the when the talks kicked off, UN envoy to Yemen, Martin Griffiths, held the first official press conference to officially open um, the talks. And he actually had the two parties sitting in the same room facing each other, which was really a historic moment. And this has not been done since 2016. And I was I was in that room at the moment at that moment that they were facing each other. And, you know, everybody around me were just taking pictures, taking videos. There was sort of a very positive atmosphere in the room. And I saw that both parties acknowledged each other's presence as well. So it's all, it's all been very, very sort of positive. Um, there is also another element. Um, before the talks uh, started, there was mounting pressures on both sides, uh, the government and the Houthi rebels, to meet for peace negotiations in Sweden and to pursue a negotiated end to this conflict and to come to the table in a serious way. And it was a push that was seen by the U.S. mostly. Um, it was actually the Secretary of Defense, James Mattis, who said that, that the talks must happen by the end of November. And um, 
one other element I, I must say was was sort of like crucial in getting these talks to start was um, the Arab coalition before the talk, the talks happened last Monday. The Arab coalition approved the relocation of 50 wounded Houthi fighters for treatment in Amman. And um, this was a sticking point in the last round of talks in Geneva when the rebels refused to join. Now, this was in September. Um, but this time round, uh, the fact that the Arab coalition approved uh, the uh, relocating the wounded Houthi fighters, it met a key condition for the Houthis to attend the talks. So, so far, there's been sort of a positive atmosphere in, in, in Sweden. The body language set aside, there is a lot of bad blood between the two sides. They've been engaged in a civil war for years. I want to know how is the special envoy from the UN, Martin Griffiths, navigating through these complicated relationships uh, during the talks. Have there been any times where they were at risk of breaking down as they have in the past in Kuwait in 2016? Uh, Martin Griffiths has been having separate talks with each party about different issues. They've not met officially face-to-face just yet. And the whole point of, of getting them here was just to talk to each side, to get what, to get their ideas and to get their views on what on the ways that they want to resolve the war. So the issues that have been dis- discussed so far in Sweden have put aside discussions on a political transition in Yemen, but instead is focusing on humanitarian issues such as prisoner swap, the reopening of Sana'a airport, and securing the UN administration of the strategic port of Hodeida. And a UN source actually told me that whatever gains we get here in Sweden as an ent- is, is going to be seen as an entry point to the solution of the conflict. And it's a way of, of, of sort of like building trust between the two sides because it's clear that there's a lot of like lack of trust and confidence between them. And getting them here to Sweden is a, is a step towards building that uh, or bridging that gap between the two parties. You mentioned Hodeida. It's the uh, biggest port in Yemen. Uh, millions of Yemenis are dependent on the aid that comes through it. But that's kind of been one of the sore talking points in these talks. I want to know what is the fate of the port city, Hodeida, and has there been any development from either side? Discussions here are set to tackle, like I said, many issues, including prisoner swap, but the most sort of vital one has been um, uh, tackling the fate of the rebel-held city of Hodeida, which is a vital, which is a vital um, port uh, to food and aid imports. Um, but so far, Hodeida has proven to be the most complex issues here. Um, even uh, Martin Griffiths has said uh, in, in his press conference that Hadida has been the most of all, uh, the most difficult of all. Um, and he said that progress on this port was crucial to finding a solution to the conflict. Now, the government has said that it is not willing to consider a ceasefire agreement that did not meet its three existing preconditions. And they are that the rebels, the Houthi rebels, must withdraw from Hodeida, the Hodeida city and port, surrender their arms, and that the the city should be placed under full governmental control. Now, one of the the government delegation members told me that these three factors must be met before we consider any proposals for peace. And 
the government is willing to accept a UN supervision of Cardeda's port, but insists on, like I said, the full and sole uh, and full control of the city. And the Houthis are refusing to withdraw from the city and the port. And I guess this is where the sticking point occurs. Martin Griffith has always said that he wanted to take Hodeida out of the war. And he hopes that international aid deliveries can be restored through the port. Um, and that could obviously alleviate the country from famine and it's, it's, and could alleviate the humanitarian crisis that it's currently going through. So it still remains as a sticking point and both the government and the Houthi delegation have not come to an agreement on Hodeida just yet. And I don't think that they will be in this time, in this round of talks. Mina, on Hodeida, the UN suggested a joint control of the port as a possible solution to what seems a, a little bit like a deadlock from either side. Would that even be a consideration from either the Yemeni government or the Houthis? No, uh, Nasser, the Yemeni government is insisting that Houthis insisting on a full withdrawal of the Houthi rebels from the port and the city of Hodeida. And actually, there's been sort of a leaked document that was circulating uh, in the media room in the past few days, showing that the UN um, is presented a proposal to, to both sides on, on the a joint management of the, of the port and the city of Hodeida. But the UN denied that it's drawn up a plan to resolve the dispute. And Martin Griffith said that, um, you know, it's not something that they've worked on so far. What the government is requesting is that the government's transport ministry must be responsible for managing the port. And the police forces that, that are affiliated with the interior ministry must be responsible for security inside of Hodeida. So they're, ru- they're ruling out the possibility of a joint control with the rebels. And they won't accept that. And just so we can get the full picture, for the Houthis, handing over control of Hodeida is the equivalent of surrendering in this war. The Hodeida offers them the main source of arms, of provisions, of really access to the outside world, considering that Sana'a is not functioning as it should be, uh, or as it should be for the country of Yemen. So. What are they saying? And is there any possibility of them actually accepting these terms, considering the circumstances? So the government accuses the rebels of smuggling arms from Iran through Hodeida and has demanded, like I said, the withdrawal from the area. And the Houthis have so far refused such requests. They're not going to back down. I think if they back down, it would mean that they surrender in this war and they've not achieved victory. They're really sticking to their guns, Nasser. Um, And that's that's why the UN envoy believes that Hodeida remains a sticking issue in, 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 in these talks. We've had the prisoner swap agreement. We also have the 50 Houthi fighters who were injured in the war being flown to Amman to receive treatment. What is the significance of uh, these confidence building measures? And can we see more agreements maybe falling short of the actual Hodeida uh, uh, solution. So the delegates from both parties said that the prisoner swap, which will be implemented by the Red Cross, had been largely finalized. The first step has been largely finalized. And I just found out that the Yemeni government uh, has handed over its list of names to the UN this morning. 
Um, I spoke to Hadi Haig, he's the head of the government's prisoner swap committee, and he told me that the deal would be carried out in stages and that it could take up to 48 days before all prisoners were exchanged. And the government has delivered a list of nearly 18,000 people it once released um, from the Houthi prisons. President Hadi, the Yemen's president, uh, Abdel Rabba Mansour Hadi, has told the UN envoy to ensure that he makes the prisoner swap his main priority in order to build trust between the two parties um, and to sort of lift the suffering and alleviate Yemen from its humanitarian crisis. So this is really the only way forward. And it's sort of like the first step that we can see that could build and pave the way for more agreements to come in the next few months. President Abdelrabah Mansour Hadi mentioned before the talks that he would be keeping the Yemeni people in mind, that the, the humanitarian situation in the country would be his main priority in these talks. The deteriorating humanitarian situation has been in the headlines for weeks now. How does that factor in to the talks? Is there any sort of pressure on both sides on actually reaching an agreement to help bring back millions on the brink of famine? Of course, um, the main sort of or the sole purpose of the two parties being here is on on resolving the country's humanitarian crisis. That's what the Houthis are saying and that's what the government delegation are here for. And actually, it's the government delegation that's insisting on only talking about the humanitarian factors, such as prisoner swap, um, ensuring that aid is delivered to besieged uh, and, and rebel-held areas. And even experts tell me that uh, the humanitarian situation has reached to a tipping point that requires peace to move forward. Now, if the two sides fail to reach a permanent de-escalation to this conflict, um, all of Yemen or parts of Yemen will tip into famine. Um, and once that happens, even the most intensive aid efforts are unlikely to, re- to prevent a significant rise in deaths due to malnutrition and starvation. So Nasser, it really, so it really, the international community, all eyes are on, are on the two parties and what's going to happen in the next few days. And the prisoner exchange agreement is, like I said, is a way of moving forward to alleviate the country and to lift its humanitarian crisis. Julia Tuma is the UNICEF Regional Chief of Communications in the Middle East and North Africa. As part of UNICEF, she has closely monitored the humanitarian situation in Yemen and just came back from a work trip to the country. Thanks for joining us, Juliet. Thank you very much, Nasser. The talks are happening in Sweden. Would you consider the negotiations a failure if the two sides can't agree on a solution to the port city of Hodeida? I mean, look, what's very important is that um, the talks have actually kicked off. Uh, from a children's perspective, it gives a lot of hope. Um, when I was there just last week, I asked children, in fact, what does peace mean to you? And uh, almost unanimously, uh, you get the answer of um, it means living without fear. It means living without restrictions. It means going to school safely. Um, And so children are asking for peace. And I think everybody across the board in Yemen is exhausted of this conflict and of this war. Um, so we at UNICEF are really hopeful that the talks will yield to some very good results for children. 
Um, but also it's a call uh, on all parties who are meeting in um, in Sweden to prioritize children, to consider children and their needs above any other agendas that they might have that includes a military agenda or financial or uh, economic or, or uh, political agenda. Another sign of hope is a few months uh, ago, Schools in the government-held areas of Yemen were reinstated after a two-month hiatus. But I want to know about the rest of the country. What about uh, what about for the rebel-held locations? Are kids getting an education? Yeah, so I've been um, to, to Adan, but I've also been to uh, Hodeida and to Sana'a earlier this month. And um, across the board in Yemen, we have a crisis in education because 2 million um, children um, are out of school and half a million of those children have been forced out of school because of the conflict. And across the board, um, there are classrooms and schools that have been either completely damaged or semi-damaged or they're being used for military purposes. So there is a crisis in education and children's access to education has been hampered over the past four years. On top of that, you add the crisis in the salaries that the teachers and other education personnel are facing. Um, More than 130,000 civil servants in the education sector have not been paid their salaries for, for two months. All of these factors combined have led to an education crisis in, in Yemen. In the news over the last month or so, we've got a lot of reports on how the humanitarian situation is worsening in the country. But from your perspective, what exactly is the uh, what what exactly is deteriorating? What is making it get to the point where it's being considered as the worst humanitarian situation today? Yemen is a hellhole for children. It's a, it's a hellhole. It's a it's a place where nowhere is safe for children. Um, as a mother and as a father, you really don't know if you send your kid to school if they're going to come back uh, at the end of the day in one piece or not. Um, it's a place where every 10 minutes, every 10 minutes, a child dies from preventable causes, including malnutrition, but also from things like measles or diphtheria. Um, I met a boy when uh, I was in Hodeida, uh, Adam. Adam is 10 years old. Adam was 10 years old and weighed 10 kilograms when we met him. Um, and when we followed up uh, on Adam's situation, the doctors in the hospital where he was told us that uh, Adam died. So it's a reality. These uh, photos and images and um, footage that we see on our screens are real. It's happening every single day in Yemen. Unacceptable that this happens um, in the 21st century when um, food is available, when medicine is available, when science is advancing. Mind-boggling, really. You said that these are preventable causes. What's keeping these kids from getting the aid, the help that they need? Yeah, so, I mean, there are a number of factors that led to um, Yemen becoming the worst place to be a child in right now. And um, this has to do with the escalation of violence over the, the past four years. 
but also to a number of other factors, including the economic situation, which continues to deteriorate every single day. Um, it has to do with years and years of uh, underdevelopment, of de-development, of poor governance as well, of not putting the needs of the citizens right on the, the, the front table. It has to do with poverty. I mean, Yemen is... Um, the poorest country in the Middle East region, one of the poorest in the world. Um, but Yemen at the same time is a, is a very rich country in terms of natural resources. So the, the management of these natural resources have um, have never put the, the citizen at the, at the center and the needs of, of the citizen, including, of course, girls and boys in, in Yemen. Um, so what is happening right now is a lot of people do not have access to basic services. A lot of people cannot afford simple things that we take for granted, like transportation, for example. So we met uh, a few kids in, in, um, in the hospitals, and we asked, why did you wait for so long to get your kid into the hospital? And one mother said to me, look, I couldn't afford the transportation. I had to sell uh, some stuff to, get, to be able to get on a bus and get my kids to come for, for treatment. And so... There is the, the, the poverty is, is extremely it plays a, a very important role, um, but but it is I think the the, the role that that um, all of us as the humanitarian organisations have been playing over the past few years have in fact and and we have to admit that we have um, played such a life saving role for for people in Yemen um, that is a story that's often underreported. Let's put it this way, if it wasn't for organizations like the one where I work, like UNICEF and other organizations, the thing, the situation in Yemen could be much, much worse. And so it is absolutely critical that while uh, people are in, in, in Sweden doing the political talks, it's absolutely critical that humanitarian work and our massive humanitarian operation on the ground continues and that it gets support so that we're able to do more. Would your humanitarian work, work on the ground, would it be bolstered by the opening of Hodeida by a port that's undisrupted so that aid could reach those that are on the brink of famine? I mean, for us, what's really important is to have unconditional access. And that means open all borders and every single means possible to facilitate the delivery of humanitarian assistance into Yemen. Uh, and the movement on our personnel who are doctors and engineers and nurses and humanitarian workers who want to reach um, communities with vaccination, with humanitarian supplies. So any um, restriction on our movement, both the, the, our supplies and our personnel must be lifted. And so we would welcome any um, opening, really, in, that will allow us to increase the delivery of our, our humanitarian assistance and uh, ease the, the movement of our staff and personnel on the ground because what we want is to reach every child in need in Yemen. Julia, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Nasser. I'd like to thank Julia Tuma and Mina Drubi for joining me on this episode of Beyond the Headlines. You can find this and all the other national podcasts on our website. Subscribe to Beyond the Headlines for free to receive new episodes every week. You can find this on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Audioboom, or your favorite podcasting app. I've been your host, Nasr al Thank you for listening and goodbye.